The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, they were called the Angels of Bataan. Dozens of nurses who were serving the United States Armed Forces in the Philippines when war in the Pacific broke out. They were captured and imprisoned, but even as prisoners of war, they continued to serve as a nursing unit. Nurses was who they were, and nursing was what they did. Our guests today are historical fiction writers. That's who they are and what they do. In this episode, we talk to three powerhouses of historical fiction, Ariel Lohan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner, about what drew the three of them to write a novel together about U.S. Navy nurse Eleanor Lindstrom, U.S. Army nurse Penny Franklin, and civilian Filipina nurse Lita Capel, protagonists of their novel, When We Had Wings, which tells the story of the first female prisoners of World War II. When We Had Wings, and the triumvirate of authors who brought it to life, today on the History of Literature. Hello, 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 everyone. Merry, Mary. I hope you had a nice holiday. If it's over for you, well, we still have New Year's, right? And then we launch into 2023, and that looks like it's going to be spectacular. Hopefully. Let's keep our bookmarks crossed. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We're going to be trying something a little new. We previewed it on the day before Thanksgiving with our interviews with uh, Laurie Frankel. What do you want your last book to be? Well, we have dozens of these in our stockpile now. We've been asking guests that question all year. This is the last book you're ever going to read. And I'm going to sprinkle those in like fairy dust into episodes here and there, which reminds me of a story fairy dust does. My boys were young and the tooth fairy was arriving for the first time. Close your ears, kitties or parents. Close the ears of your kids. Skip ahead a bit if they're too young to hear a tooth fairy story. Let's say anyone who just had Santa visit might not want to hear this story. Okay. Some of the behind-the-scenes aspects of the Tooth Fairy. You follow what I'm saying, parents? I'll wait. Okay, just grown-ups here now, right? Okay, so my son lost a tooth, and he and his brother, who shared the room, this was like his second or third tooth that he had lost. He was the older one. He and his brother shared a room, and they were quite excited by the idea that this fairy was coming into their room at night while they were sleeping and leaving money behind in exchange for the tooth. They were six and four years old. So that night, after my son lost his tooth, they went to bed. They had all kinds of plans. I heard them talking, schemes they were putting in place, how they were going to stay up, how they they were going to set some kind of trap, capture the tooth fairy, make sure, see if they could see if she was real. They wanted to prove that she was or was not real. And so, as usual, I waited for them to fall asleep, and then I went into the room. They were sleeping away. 
And I reached for the tooth in the envelope, carefully placed onto the pillow. And I found a note. So, what to do? I staggered downstairs where I could turn on the light. Read this note. My son had written, Dear Tooth Fairy, Please leave us your autograph here. Autograph was spelled A-D-O-G-R-A-P-H with an arrow for a blank space where the autograph would go. So the Tooth Fairy had to sign to certify that she had received the tooth, apparently. And of course, I knew the boys would take that note. I knew they didn't really want the Tooth Fairy's autograph because I had heard them talking and scheming. I knew they wanted to scrutinize the signature. See if it looked like Dad's, perhaps. Any resemblance to my signature would be proof that I was a liar and a cheat and a fraud. So what to do? Ordinarily, I would use my trick of writing with my left hand. That's a disguise for a signature, but <laughs> what would I even write? Tooth Fairy? Or make up a name for the fairy? What's the fairy's name? Make up a whole backstory. This was getting complicated and I was getting tired. But luckily I had a stroke of genius. A tooth fairy doesn't fly around with a pen signing her name. But she is accommodating. She wouldn't leave that space blank. She would flutter her wings against the paper and leave behind traces of fairy dust. Wouldn't she? So all I had to do was, was create a little... A little spectacle down there. Glitter would have worked, but I didn't have any glitter. We're not that arts and craftsy in our house. So instead, I went to the spice rack and pulled out the cinnamon. Rubbed a little something on there to make it sticky. I don't remember what. But then I coated it with cinnamon. Just a little dusting. And voila, a perfect fairy signature. With signature in quotes. A brushing of wings and a little trace. So, the next morning, the boys woke up eager to see the autograph, if it was there, and I waited. Usually I didn't get up before them, but this time I wanted to make sure that I was there to explain. No, that's not a, that's not a mistake. That's not just some smudge. Don't you think, boys, that a fairy would brush her wings against the paper and leave a calling card that way? And look, isn't that exactly what she did? Look, at there's fairy dust. She doesn't leave an autograph. She brushes her wings, etc. So the boys wake up. And I'm kind of feeling one of those moments as a dad where you're already nostalgic for the days when this will no longer be applicable but you're feeling that warm feeling that your boys are curious and bright and you're still their dad and you have this great relationship with them. It was a little bit, a little bit misty as I waited, thinking about the boys and me and everything we had been through together already and everything we were going to be through, going through as we grew up together. So... The boys wake up, see the note. There's no signature. Aha, I hear them say. Then they notice she left a smudge. 
Then they take turns smelling the paper, and I'm beaming. This is all working out perfectly. It smells like cinnamon, the six-year-old cries, and my smile grows wider. All I have to do is say that's just from the brushing of wings, my dear boys, and uh, usually things like this don't work out so well. And then, <laughs> disaster. <laughs> my older one says, it smells like cinnamon, and the little one shouts, maybe we should eat the tooth fairy. Eat the tooth fairy. I just looked down at him. What kind of tiny psychopath was I raising? A hungry one, I guess. So I walked downstairs, glum, shaking my head, muttering about the brushing of wings. <laughs> Pulled out a mixing bowl and started making them pancakes, waiting for the day when they would be larger than me and all of this would make sense. Now they are larger than me, but... Still doesn't make sense. They're still the same. I guess I, I guess I don't disagree with their premise. The tooth fairy might not be real, but if she is real, she's probably tasty. Huh. Okay. So today's going to be a fun one, people. We're in our post-holiday glow. Our guests are lively. We've never had three guests before. There's a great conviviality that comes along with that. We'll hear about what it's like. For them, for three novelists to join forces and do what is often a solitary endeavor, famously solitary, almost mind-numbingly solitary, the writing of a novel, what it's like for them to do it as a trio. Sounded pretty fun, actually. At least that's how Ariel, Christina, and Susan made it sound. And then we'll have one of our guests... I think we're going to choose Charlie Lovett today. Remember Charlie, our expert in Lewis Carroll? Will he choose one of the Alice books for his last book that he will ever read? Let's find out after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Okay, joining me now is Charlie Lovett, expert in Lewis Carroll, author of a zillion books about books. We really focused on Lewis Carroll in our discussion in that episode that's going to run, but I really didn't mention for the listeners how many other books you've written about Jane Austen and just about books and book loving in general. So I cannot wait to hear your answer to this question, which comes to me from a listener who asked, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. You know, I'm sort of torn by that question because on the one hand, I want to read a book for the first time. There's a joy that comes from reading a book for the first time. So in a way, I want my last book to be a fantastic book that was published in, you know, let's just say the year 2150, so I can live to be 140 years old or something, you know. Uh, But um, (laughs) I like the idea of my last book still being a new experience. On the other hand, there's something wonderful about going back and visiting an old mm, friend. Mm-hmm. And the book that just popped into my head right now is is David Copperfield. Oh. Uh, I think it's my favorite Dickens book. And I think it would make a good last book because it's, it's about so many different parts of life. There's a nostalgia to it looking back on childhood. There's a sort of redemptive nature to it. So I don't know. I might I might have that sitting on one bedstand and on the other bedstand, a brand new book that I'm experiencing for the first time. Yeah. David Copperfield, I mean, it would have nostalgia for you as someone uh, who's read it when you were a child as well. But I think you're the first person who's chosen Dickens. But Dickens is such a great choice. He had such a, a gusto and such a just just the way life kind of explodes out of his books that it seems like it would be a really comforting thing to have as your last book or just a kind of nice farewell to this earth to be uh, exploring it in all of its multicolors. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, Charlie Lovett, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks for having me. Okay, there we go. One brand new book and David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. A wonderful choice for the last book that one will ever read. Great Expectations would also be anything by Dickens, really. He's such good company. Probably would make a good audiobook, too, if you're not feeling like reading in those final days. Turn it on and travel back to that Dickensian era. Speaking of traveling back to an era, let's bring out our trio of guests, historical novelists, one and all, and travel back to the Pacific Theater in the 1940s and hear a compelling story about incredible women of courage and empathy. Okay, this is a first for us on the History of Literature. Hopefully we can pull this off. We have three guests (laughs) at the same time. They are the co-authors of the new book, When We Had Wings, a breathtaking World War II novel about the first female POWs. Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having us. Okay, so you're all accomplished writers, and you came together for this book. I'm wondering if it's if it's like a super group, like the traveling Wilburys or something, where you were all stars <laughs> and you decided to team up and and join forces, or if you're more like that story of the Chinese brothers, where one brother can swallow the sea and the other one has a really long neck, and one could resist <laughs> fire and so on. So, do you say that well, so and so is great at dialogue, and and this one is great at plot, and and that kind of thing, or is it more of a, we can do it all, so let's do it all together? And I guess I'll start with you, Christina. 
Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I love the fact that, yes, I can resist fire. <laughs> no, um, I, I wish that would be like House of Dragons or something. No. Um, so as far as uh, how it came together, we it's actually unusual because you would think that's very often how it goes and that people team up and say, hey, let's write a novel together. Um, in our case, it was the opposite, which makes it really even that much more fun in that uh, HarperCollins, an imprint of theirs called Harper Muse, came to us and said, would the three of you like to write a book together? Wow. And the fact that we were already friends, um, and some of us closer than others as far as in-person versus knowing each other online for years. Um, this, but other than that, the three of us were friends to an extent and already. Um, and so when they asked us, it felt like Ocean's Eleven of literature. Yeah. And that we're, you know, <laughs> kind of the actors that get to play together and you say, you want to pay us too? We say, gee, that's a hard question. So yes, of course, we'll, we'll jump at that chance to work together. And we already loved and admired each other's work um, and um, cared for each other, like I said. So it was a really easy decision. And, and then we just had to decide on what topic they, they did uh, ask if we could do World War II as a setting. And, uh, and we wanted to make sure that we came up with something that was unique that we hadn't seen a lot. So that's where we started. Right. Okay. Well, Ocean's Eleven is a good example. There's someone in there is a expert in explosives and someone else is the, <laughs> you know, the, is the acrobat who's good at escapes and that kind of thing. Susan, did you feel like, oh, I'm working with these people and, and, uh, I know that, Christina is really good at research or anything like that? Or or did you kind of approach it all as, let's just do this as if we were writing a novel, but we have, you know, sort of a built-in sounding board and and someone who can uh, write the first draft and, and also people who can uh, revise? And, and I'm also kind of fascinated that this was the publisher's idea. I, it seems so unusual that uh, I'm surprised they suggested it. I think we, at least from my perspective, I think we are all acrobats who can mm. um, knock out knock out the power in Las Vegas. It's like we, I feel like <laughs> we all have the skills that we need yeah. to do sure. to pull it off because we've done it before. You know, we, we've yeah. all written solo works, historical fiction. So I think we brought to the table all the skills we would need to write the book alone, but we did it together. And what I think what we brought that we didn't have is that sounding board. What was nice is while we were writing, I, I never let anybody see my work while I'm mm -hmm. writing. I, I write in isolation like a lot of mm -hmm. writers do, yeah. but we had each other and we needed each other because we had to read each other's chapters as we were going because they, they mattered to each other's character stories. Sure. Yeah. And so we, we had each other to refine. We were always refining and revising and polishing, which usually happens after you turn your book into your editor, but we were able to do it as we wrote, which was nice because when we turned it in, it felt like it was, it was that second draft, you know, after you've had an editor to yeah. go through it, but we were doing it for each other. And that was really nice. Yeah. It also seems like you could avoid that feeling of, I've got to face the blank page or, oh, I, I'm not sure if what I've been working on has uh, any merit. And instead, it's it's more like you get to send things off to a friend and and maybe one day you might be writing from scratch and, and other days you might be revising something that one of your friends has written. Ariel, did you find this to be a, a pleasurable experience or were are there obstacles that I'm not seeing here? 
I, I loved it. And I mean, mm. I, I think I speak for all of us and I say it really was a great experience in this particular case because we had three different authors with three independent careers and each of us working on our own specific deadlines when the projects came to us. We sat down, we agreed on what we were going to write and we agreed on the basic plot. I mean, we were hemmed in by history and time and we knew we were working within specific dates and specific events. And it ended up working out really great because Susan had the first opening in her schedule. So she wrote her portion of the novel kind of beginning mm. to end. She mm -hmm. really laid down the tracks. And I, I often say that she had the hardest job. Her job was taking nothing and turning it into something. So she really sort of set the signposts for where the story was going to go. And then I came in second because of my schedule freed up second. And I wrote my characters sections kind of in and around what Susan had already done. And it worked out really great that way because geographically where my character is located, she kind of became the hinge for the other two. The other two characters pass in and out of where she was in the story. And it provided this continuity for the story overall, but also for the friendship that we describe in the book. And then, of mm. course, Christina also had an incredibly difficult part. I think I had the easiest part. I came in the middle. But Christina had the challenge of landing the plane, and she had to yeah. come in at the end because that's when her availability was and write her character's parts along what was already there. So right. it was challenging in a technical level because we were working with different schedules. But I think overall a really enjoyable experience that none of us had been able to do before. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question. We are talking about the Angels of Bataan, and there are three protagonists. And I was wondering if that was the way you kind of approach this, is you each took one of them and kind of wrote from that character's point of view in order to give yourself some ability to be continuous with a narrative in addition to working on the work as a whole. So, Christina, was that the plan from the outset? Is that kind of how you decided to approach the idea of writing a collaborative novel? Yeah, absolutely. What worked out great is that Susan is the one that came across the documentary that I'm sure she'll tell you more about that uh, was about the Angels of Baton, about these incredible nurses. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we hadn't heard about them before, we thought was wrong. <laughs> and um, and that's what we always love to do with our historical fiction is shine a spotlight on something that has been underrepresented. And so we were thrilled about that. Well, we sat down and watched that very short documentary and there were three nurses. So I was sitting here jotting down notes about all the details that we could all refer back to as, as we outlined our story. And there was a U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, and a Filipina nurse. And I remember emailing the three of them saying, oh, my gosh, like, what are the chances? <laughs> there, there are three types of nurses. And on top of them, I'm, I'm half Japanese myself. My father is an immigrant from Kyoto. The other side of my family is Irish, which is, I know, all kinds of confusing. And so that just seemed like a natural then right away. I thought, oh my gosh, I have to write the Filipina nurse, not only because of my Asian background, but because I'd grown up with nothing but all my best friends growing up were Filipina. So I grew up in those houses and I knew the food and I knew the preparation of that food for days before every single holiday. We'd graze all day and the community and the culture of that, you know, beautiful people. So that was a natural. And the other gals will explain to you why, why their characters were perfect for them. But it really was so obvious that each one of us should write each one of those characters, that it would keep that consistency also of one voice for a character all the way through, which is what we always try to do as authors, of course, when we have different points of view and we're writing them ourselves, 
is to have those chapters really reflect slightly different type of voice so that you know which head that you're in. So in that right. case, this, this really made that part easy. Okay. So Susan, what was this documentary? Who were the angels of Bataan? And, and then maybe you could tell us which uh, nurse you chose to write about. Sure. Well, the angels of Bataan were a group of, they're, they're real women. We fictionalized uh, three of them, but they were real women stationed in the Philippines just prior to World War II starting for the, um, for the United States. So they were in place in early 1941. Um, the Philippines was a U.S. territory back then. So there was an army base, a naval base. There were Marines in place. And there were two hospitals, an army hospital and a Navy hospital. And they were staffed in part um, by female uniformed uh, nurses. And um, they, when the Philippines fell to the Japanese forces and MacArthur left and pr- promising to return, Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which he did. Uh, it took three and a half years, though, for him to come back. Uh, these women became prisoners of war, just like the men. Mm-hmm. They were not forced to walk on the death march, but they were incarcerated and um, treated like all the other prisoners were, which was inhumanely. And they not only survived, but they nursed people the entire time. So while a lot of the other prisoners were just prisoners and were just, you know, just trying to eke out a survival, they were doing that too, but they were still doing what they were sent to the Philippines to do, and that is nurse people. So they're incredibly brave, very resilient. They nurse people with practically nothing. And their story, sadly, is not well known. It should be known. What they did was incredibly brave and amazing and heroic, um, but their story hasn't. Most people have never heard of them. Yeah. I hadn't heard of them. And when we were looking for an idea, and I was doing a Google deep dive one day, on, I think I was looking for female heroes unsung female heroes of World War II. And this documentary was a ping on the search. And I believe it's on Amazon Prime. It's about a 20-minute long documentary. And it, I can't remember the exact title, but if you look for Angels of Baton, it will probably pop up. Um, it, I, I watched it. I thought, gosh, this sounds like, this sounds like our kind of story because we did want to tell a story that hadn't been told already. Right. And um, so I sent the link to the gals. They watched it, and we knew right away that we had the story we wanted to tell. And because there were three different types of nurses, the casting was already there for us. We just had to create characters because we did want to fictionalize. We wanted to control um, the the character story, so we did not take real people. We fictionalized three. Mine is the Navy nurse. Her name is Eleanor. She is a um, 23-year-old from Minnesota. She's never seen the ocean she joins the army um, after getting her heart broken, trying to create some distance between her and the broken pieces of her life. And she goes about as far as a person can go. She's 8,000 miles away from home. She's already a nurse, so that that wasn't a huge change, but her location is a huge change. And the fact that now she's joined the Navy, um, but not expecting to see battle. Women didn't have combat roles back then, so she's only expecting to nurse people in a military environment. And, of mm-hmm. course, everything changes. Um, on December 8, 1941. Yeah. So I read about the the Angels of Bataan that they referred to themselves, at least at first, as the Battling Bells of Bataan, uh, which suggests, uh, I mean, angels is maybe how they appeared to others, but it seems like they themselves saw what a, a struggle they were in and the kind of conditions and everything that they were facing. must have felt pretty difficult to survive even as being prisoners of war, let alone being able to continue to serve as a nursing unit. Yes, they they probably saw themselves as people who were uniquely placed to continue to do what they'd been sent to do. 
I don't think they saw themselves as heroes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they had to bat, they, you know, they had to battle to um, do what they needed to do. But just from what I've read about them, and there's a interview you can see on YouTube with the author of an amazing book called uh, We Band of Angels by Elizabeth Norman, who is a professor and an RN. And she wrote the definitive nonfiction work on these women. It's an amazing book. It came out um, in 1999. So she was able to talk to 20 of the surviving nurses for this book. Um, they've all passed uh, from this life now. But back then, 20 were still alive. And I think they, they didn't realize they were heroes at the moment. And maybe that's, maybe that's true of all heroes is they're just doing what needs to be done. You know, they see the need and they respond. And, you know, if you're a nurse, you're already in that world of compassion. You're already in the, in the universe of people who want to ease suffering. And so they, I think they were incredibly humble actually, and Mm -hmm. did not see the amazing things they had done until they had people affirm that to them when they came home. Right. And uh, Ariel, I I take it your character was U.S. Army nurse Penny Franklin? Yes, yes, indeed. That is my nurse. And I specifically wanted the Army nurse because I personally have ties to the U.S. Army. My grandfather was a lieutenant colonel during World War II, Mm. the Army, and my father was military police during Vietnam for the Army. Mm. And so Mm. I have a great deal of respect to what the men and women in the armed services overall, but specifically for the army, what they did, the sacrifices they made, the people they left behind. Um, I've always wanted to write something about the U.S. Army, and this story gave me a chance. And, of course, Penny is from Texas. I did that specifically because I married a Texan. Mm. My parents are Texan. My grandparents are Texans. Two of our children are Texans. I used to say I'm very fluent in the language. So creating Penny and her voice was really fun for me. She was a really, um, she was a challenge in terms of creating a character out of whole cloth, but also based on the experiences of these real women. Yeah. And does Penny have any particular... Uh, strengths and weaknesses or or dilemmas that she faces that the others don't face? She does. One of which is a spoiler, so I will not uh, share it here for those that have not read the book. But specifically, her strengths, I think she's really, really good at speaking her mind, and she's really good at doing the next thing. Whatever has to be done, she's willing to do. Um, You could say that she's one of those people that is willing to do the hard thing. Obviously, Mm. she's deeply compassionate. She's a nurse. And, you know, I think we tend to think of compassionate people as soft. And it's actually the reverse. I think compassionate people are incredibly, incredibly strong to Mm. do what you have to do as a medical professional to care for somebody who's sick or hurt or dying. You have to have incredible emotional fortitude and incredible strength. And all of these women did, the Army nurses, the Navy nurses, the Filipino nurses. And I think it is that deep, deep emotional fortitude that allowed them to survive, to keep fighting, to keep serving, to keep nursing with nothing, with no food, with the most basic medical instruments. Mm. These are tough women. And uh, Christina, we didn't hear as much about the Filipina nurse, uh, Lita. That's if I'm pronouncing that correctly. What is she like and how does she fit into the story? 
Sure, absolutely. I love talking about Lita. So she is a 22 year old. You know, these all relatively young. They sound, gosh, they sound so young to us now. <laughs> it's so sad. At one time, the 20s didn't sound young. Um, so she is, she is a nurse that is a bit different, obviously, than the other two. Uh, first of all, she is from a small fishing village there. She is the youngest of four girls, and she is a mestiza. So that being that she is what they considered at the time half-breed. Um, and that her father is a Caucasian. He's American, was a missionary, and her mother was Filipina. Hmm. And so because of this, she doesn't quite know exactly what world she belongs in. And I could relate to that as a kid, of course, not knowing exactly which culture I sort of I belong to more, having a foot in both. And so struggling with the identity is what she kind of goes through. And I, I love that about her and gives her a little bit of a a different type of uh, trait and personality and struggle. And other than that, her sisters are all nurses. They all used the immigration channel at the time that still continues to this day, that they became nurses and were trained by the U.S. there. And then they were able to immigrate over to the U.S. that way. And so she's expected to do the same, but she struggles then because she feels a bit of an imposter in that, that she believes that that is not her calling. And yet that is, you know, what she was expected to do. And there's other reasons, of course, that come out in the story of why she's doing what she's doing. So the name I have to mention, of course, is that her name, Lita, being short for Angelita, uh, is borrowed from the mother of my best friend growing up. So I mm. still relied on my closest friends growing up to throughout this book, constantly sending them messages, asking them about this or that, about different food spices, about the the family structure, et cetera. And I got to borrow just about all of their cousins' names <laughs> for characters in the book. I'm like, I need more names. And they'd rattle off all their cousins. And that was when really when we learned about the nurses, about so many Filipinos, um, men and women being nurses, that I didn't realize that before. I think all three of us were surprised about that, had no idea. And when I asked my friend Angie about that, I said, I had no idea. She said, oh, yeah. And she listed off probably a dozen of her relatives that were cousins and aunts that are all nurses. Wow. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and then come back with our guests. And in particular, we're going to find out what these three nurses might have read. Okay, we're back with Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner, the super group of historical fiction writers whose new novel is called When We Had Wings. So we were talking about some of the research that you've done, and I don't know if this was part of your research or if you know these characters well enough to have some fun with this and, and maybe imagine a few things, but these women, I guess, would have come of age in the 1920s and 30s and because this is the History of Literature podcast and because you've done research on this era and these people, I'm curious about what women like this in this position might have been reading. Let's start with Susan. Do you have any thoughts, real or imagined, about what your character might have read? Well, that's a very interesting question. And for our nurses, um, what happened to them after they became POWs was there was no new reading material coming mm. to them. So whatever they brought with them 
from home, they had to just share with each other over and over and over again. Yeah. And which, which is difficult if you're a reader, you always want something new to read. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, of course, had to you know, share with each other what they brought from home. And so when I was thinking about Eleanor, I thought of Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which oh. was, it was making the rounds back then. I can see where maybe she didn't bring it from home, but because she came there with a broken heart, you know, maybe she saw it in somebody else's footlocker and, and borrowed it. But when Carson McCullers wrote this book, she was only 23. And, you know, the book itself rose to instant acclaim. It's been around all these many decades later. It's been made into yeah. a movie. And if you've read it, you know, it, it reminded me of Steinbeck when I read it. Um, mm-hmm. It's deep and thoughtful. And, you know, it's about a cast of characters who pour out their hearts to a deaf mute in a cafe in the South. And the, you know, the characters are, are different. They come from different places. They all have wounds they're trying to deal with. And it's during a time when there was much injustice in the South. And, you know, everyone is looking for solace and they pour out their hearts to this confidant who can't speak to them. And, and because of the title, you know, Heart is a Lonely Hunter, well, who of us is not looking for a kind of love that makes you feel safe in a world that's not safe? And I think that's the kind of book that, that she might not have minded reading over and over again because she's looking and wanting her heart to be healed and to be able to love again. And I think maybe that book might have spoken to her in a way that perhaps if she had been at home in Minnesota, perhaps that would not have happened. Yeah, right. I can almost imagine a a scene where if she's reading the book, it would sort of allow you to to kind of shed some light on some of the things she was going through as she was reacting to things that she was reading in the book. Definitely. And, you know, the one of the main characters is a young girl who is coming into her own. She kind of evolves from child to young woman in the book. And I feel like that's Eleanor's story, too, is she came there a little bit naive. You know, she's 23, but she's a little bit naive about a lot of things. And, um, you know, she goes to probably the harshest university there is, and that is war, to learn about the strengths of the heart. And it's not a spoiler to say, I feel like she's a very good student. She learns quite a bit in her time as a POW. Mm. Ariel, what would uh, U.S. Army nurse Penny Franklin have been reading? Well, this is a really fun experiment to think, what would Mm. would Penny have brought with her? And one thing that came to mind is Frenchman's Creek by Daphne du Maurier. And we know that Mm -hmm. she is the queen of gothic fiction and mystery and moodiness. (laughs) Uh, It is no exaggeration to say that Penny is in a bit of a mood when Uh she arrives in the Philippines. She has just faced enormous tragedy in her life, and she is looking to escape like the main character in Frenchman's Creek. She's a woman who leaves everything she's ever known and runs off to another place. She wants to escape. She is restless with her life and the hand she's been dealt. She's dealing with enormous amounts of pain. And to a certain degree, she's chasing after danger. There's this sense of wanting to take a risk, which I think is fairly common in people that have suffered tragedy. Mm -hmm. There's a need to feel alive in that situation. And so I imagine Penny is there and she is reading Dorier and she is going over this book over and over and over and finding those commonalities with this main character. I can see her loaning the book out, but also wanting it back. I tend to be that way with the book I love. (laughs) I want other people to read it. I just don't want them to steal my book. (laughs) I want them to read it. I want us to talk about it afterwards. Then I want my book back so I can keep it on my shelf. 
And I can see Penny doing that. Like, so she's writing property of U.S. Army nurse Penny Franklin on the, <laughs> on the inside cover. <laughs> yes, she is. She's probably also committing the great literary sin of dog-earing her pages and possibly wow. even underlining sentences that she loves. Yeah, right. Well, maybe it would be the kind of thing where she would be sort of discovering something about herself. I think what you said is very interesting and probably true, but also a little bit counterintuitive that people who experience tragedy, it might make them more cautious or stay at home, but instead they find themselves testing limits, but they probably don't always understand or appreciate why exactly that is. So if she's seeing a character do that in a novel, it might have helped her understand herself better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably not a universal impulse. Mm -hmm. But I think for certain people and certain personality types and in very specific situations, Mm -hmm. the, the need to feel alive would be very common under those circumstances. Yeah. Okay. Christina, how about our uh, Filipina nurse, Lita? Well, I would say I love that that Ariel just mentioned that Penny would dog ear those pages because I could absolutely <laughs> see that with Penny. And I think that Lita would be the opposite, actually, because oh. I hadn't thought about that before. But um, but she would not dog ear the pages because coming from a fishing village where they don't have much, I think they would revere the, the belongings that she has. And mm-hmm. they didn't have much growing up. So you would take care of those books and they would be passed down through the sisters. Uh, everything would be a hand-me-down, of course. And having a mother who really cared about uh, them having a better life. So they would care about their education. So, of course, reading would be key in that. And they shared everything, including uh, in the stories. A big thing that they shared was music. So in the story, of course, you know, my character, Lita, singing is, is a big thing with the family, especially American songs. And that's because it's free. And to do that together costs nothing. And mm-hmm. so I think the same when you have a book, you treasure it. Aside from reading, I think one thing that makes her a little bit different maybe than the others is that reading newspapers in the Philippines would have been something that, that she also would have done oh, and cared yeah. about because they cared about what was happening with the war. The Philippines, of course, had been colonized and and ruled by many different countries. And so they were finally on their way to having their own country that the U.S. was going to allow them to be on their own finally in just a few more years if they could make it through. And then, of course, that's why it's even more devastating when the Japanese attack and invade and even more reason to fight back because they finally were going to have their own country. So all that being said, aside from newspapers that you would not be able to get much of during the war, of course, um, would be a book that I happened across that I think fits her perfectly. It's called Land of Spices by Kate O'Brien. And given that it has this struggle of a woman who, in the story, she uh, becomes a nun and then struggles with that vocation of what her calling truly is. And there is a young boarder then, this uh, young girl who helps change the course of her life, and they kind of help guide each other. And so because of that, I would say that the title alone, of course, fits Lita perfectly and that you have Land of Spices. So I can't imagine a better title for her to connect with. It reflects her country, her mother's food that she loves so much, and also the sense of the Manila streets as you're walking down and all of the vendors and selling all these different foods that you can imagine. So you've got those wafts that I think fit that perfectly. And then the obvious of what I just mentioned as far as the doubts about her vocation and her calling There's also the connection to the story and herself of forging a strong friendship that helps sustain her through a lot of uncertainty and really through that finding out how 
strong she truly is. And then ultimately a young person who helps guide the course of her life. And in this case, uh, through my story, through Lita's story, there's not just one young person, but many. Okay. I'm going to throw out the last question for whoever wants to take it. Uh, Do you think that these nurses in this scenario would have turned to literature to make sense of the war and what they were going through? Would they have had that available to them? Or do you think they would have turned to literature as a diversion or an escape? Or do you think literature was, they were blocked from it and the books we've talked about maybe being passed around maybe would not have been something they would have had in their personal possessions? Were they living without literature for a few years? I'll take that one. I think primarily it was escape. These women were in this circumstance where it was either everything is happening all at once and they are in these surgical wards and these sick wards for 10 minutes. 12 hours a day sometimes, mm-hmm. just going 90 to nothing, or there was nothing to do for great long stretches. Oh, sometimes right. hours, sometimes days, depending on where they were and how they moved throughout various locations to the war. Mm-hmm. And I really think, and we know this, we do know this from the historical record, that these nurses, the real nurses, they passed their books around over and over and over, and they read them over and over and over. And it was really one of the only forms of entertainment and escape that they had. Mm. Okay. Well, the book is called When We Had Wings. Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. This is great fun. Okay, that will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to David Copperfield, Charlie Lovett, Charles Dickens, the Tooth Fairy, and of course to our guests today, Ariel Lohan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner. Do check out their book, When We Had Wings, in bookstores everywhere. Maybe you didn't get everything you wanted for Christmas. Maybe maybe Santa and the people near you left a few things off your list. Well... You can add that one to it. Treat yourself and enjoy the run-up to New Year's and the new year. We will have a special episode on Thursday, a bit of a look back and a look ahead. We're digging deep. Deep. I choked up a little bit when I said that. And we're kicking off the new year with Ernest Hemingway, along with a book about the history of books. Very smart guest coming on for that one. Franz Kafka will be here. Episode on him, Margaret in his diaries, Margaret Fuller, Elizabeth Bishop, and more. We have so much planned for the new year. So sign up now. Subscribe, 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 and hit the new year running and reading and listening. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.